We now take up God's Word. We'll consider as our text, Esther chapter 2. We'll read in preparation a portion from Luke's Gospel. We'll read from the Gospel of Luke, Luke 23, verses 32 to 43. Luke 23. 32 to 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, that is our Lord. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. May it stand firm and may it stand sure forevermore. And let us as his people respond with a singing of Psalm 22, verse 3. Esther chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young, women who, the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, 
Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went uh, in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he sent the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands firm and sure. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text this afternoon, it opens with the rather curious statement that after the king's anger had cooled, he remembered Vashti and her rebellion. We might find ourselves wondering, well, how is that possible? How is it that the king could have possibly forgotten about events that had been of such enormous personal and political significance. Well, the key to appreciating what's happened here is to know that Xerxes had had a long time to cool his jets. 
And that's because there's actually a gap of several years between the events of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And during those years, Xerxes had been a busy fellow. And what had occupied him during that time was the business of making war. He'd been making war on the Greeks. Now, as we learned this morning, things hadn't gone very well for Xerxes. Though the Persians hadn't been routed, the Greeks had succeeded in fighting them to a standstill. And from a public relations standpoint, this had been an absolute disaster for Xerxes. And here's the thing, it it wasn't just a matter of having to return home in disgrace. Xerxes had also come back broke, and so had everyone else who had supported him. You see, this is the thing about waging war in the ancient world. The only way to pay for everything was by plundering the goods of the people whom you defeated. Xerxes and his nobles, they had raised and they had supplied their armies through a combination of taxes and personal investment. And this meant that they had invested their personal wealth as well as the wealth of the empire in Xerxes' ill-fated venture against the Greeks. And they had done so because they not only expected to recoup their investment, they had expected to profit handsomely by plundering the lands of the Greeks. The trouble, however, is that you only get to plunder when you win. The upshot of Xerxes' defeat, then, was that nobody got any glory and nobody got any gold. And that was a huge problem for a king in the ancient world because there were only two things that an ancient king was expected to provide for his people, and those things were glory and gold, which meant that by the time that Xerxes got back to Susa, his approval ratings had tanked He was a very grumpy king, and he was decidedly on edge. And it is in this context that Xerxes remembers Vashti. And let's be clear, it wasn't out of any sense of fondness, it wasn't out of any sense of regret, nor was Xerxes motivated by loneliness. Narcissists can't be lonely, after all they always have themselves. And it wasn't for want of physical intimacy. There were many other ways for Xerxes to meet those needs. And that may leave us wondering, well, if those weren't the motivating factors, what was it that suddenly sparks Xerxes' desire to try and find a queen? Well, the key to answering that question is to know this. While any woman could provide Xerxes with company, and while any woman could provide him with sexual satisfaction, There was one thing that only a queen could provide him with, and that one thing was a legal heir. And you see, knowing that, it helps us to appreciate that when Xerxes begins this process of trying to find himself a queen, he is acting entirely out of self-interest here. Now, I want to make that clear, and in order to do that, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are Memekin. Remember Memekin? We talked about him this morning. He was the fellow who we sort of theorized might have had his own marriage problems. Well, imagine that you are Memekin, and imagine that your king has just returned home after being soundly defeated in a fight that he had started. And it's not just that your king has been disgraced, he's also been impoverished. 
And as a result of investing in him, so have you. Now, understandably, you'd be upset by these kinds of circumstances. And in your anger, you might start wondering if maybe you would be better served by a more capable, a more competent ruler. Maybe a ruler who can actually make good on his promise to provide you with glory and gold. And as you're stewing on these thoughts, as you're sitting there angrily wondering if perhaps a a more competent king might be helpful, it suddenly occurs to you that this king does not have an heir. You suddenly remember that Xerxes had put Vashti aside. And when he put her aside and he took the crown from her, by definition he had also put aside any children that he had had with her which means that hypothetically, if something were to happen to Xerxes, let's say he was to fall down a flight of stairs or have a hunting accident, or maybe if Xerxes was to eat something that disagreed with him, there would be no one standing in line to claim the crown. And without an heir, that crown would be then up for grabs. And in such a circumstance, Couldn't a well-positioned individual perhaps grab hold of that crown for themselves? And suddenly, suddenly what we realize is that Xerxes remembers Vashti because everyone else has remembered Vashti. He looked around at, at all of those advisors he had once trusted, and he sees the predatory look in their eyes, and he came to the stunning realization that if he was going to survive this situation, he needed a queen, and he needed a queen's stat. But while this mighty ruler is capable of seeing the problem, he isn't capable of formulating a solution. And so once again, what is it that Xerxes does? He turns to others. He turns to his advisors for direction. Though this time we do have to give Xerxes some credit, we read in our text here that he bypasses his senior advisors and he goes to talk to the younger men at court. Xerxes may have been a narcissistic tyrant, but he wasn't a complete dullard. He knew that you don't expose your belly to the other alpha males in the court. And so what does he do? What does he do? He goes to the young courtiers, and he lays his problem before them. And these young courtiers, they aren't stupid either because they see this opportunity for what it really is. It's a chance to advance their own cause. And how will they do that? by marrying one of their sisters or one of their daughters into the royal family. After all, if you can't be the king, the next best thing is to make sure that you enjoy the king's favor. And what better way would there be to do that than to make sure that one of your family members was wearing the crown? But here's the thing. You've got to be careful. You've got to be careful because men like Xerxes might not be that bright, but they can smell self-interest from a mile away. And these young men at court, they don't want to spook Xerxes. So what do they do? Well, they cloak their true intentions by suggesting that what Xerxes should do is he should conduct an empire-wide search for a new queen. 
Now, of course, what we need to understand is that they make this suggestion knowing full well that historically the Persian kings had a long-established practice of choosing their queens from families who had the most illustrious Persian bloodlines. And so these young men at court, they never even for a moment imagine that a foreigner, let alone a foreigner of lowly birth, might actually pose a threat to their plans to put one of their own family members on the throne. And so once again this afternoon, brothers and sisters, as we read this chapter, we watch the most powerful man in the world get played like a fiddle. His courtiers, they sense his fear, and they respond by inciting his lust. And predictably, Xerxes loves it. He thinks this plan is fantastic, and he signs on immediately. And what follows, what follows can only be described as exploitation on a grand scale, as a group of young women are taken, and taken is most definitely the right word here, because this wasn't a contest that these women had entered voluntarily. No, this is a contest that they are dragooned. This is a contest that they are drafted into. These young women from across the empire are taken from their homes, and they are effectively imprisoned behind the palace walls. And there, in what we can only describe as splendid isolation, they were beautified, and they were trained in the sensual arts for nearly a year. And they endured all this. They endured all of this so that for just one night, they could be escorted to the king's bedchamber and that they could be used for his pleasure. And after that one night, all but one of them, think about this for a minute, all but one of them, would be consigned to live out the remainder of their lives in the seclusion of the king's harem. Now, I can appreciate how you might be thinking to yourself at this point, all right, temple, that's fine and dandy, but you gave us a history lesson this morning, and we're getting another one this afternoon. Is all of this history really necessary? Well, let's stop. Let's stop and consider what we've learned and let's apply it to the flow of the story so far. Let's apply what we've learned to this movement from chapter 1 into chapter 2. In chapter 1, we were introduced to the world of the Persian Empire, and we came to that empire at a time when it was at the height of its glory. And in that chapter, we were given a big-picture view of Persian power and influence. And that was important. It was important because we, we needed to be taught a lesson about how we as God's people are to view the kingdoms of men. And now here in the opening verses of chapter 2, we discover that God as a master storyteller, that God takes that camera lens and he shifts its focus. Instead of looking now at the whole of the empire, our attention gets narrowed, it gets focused down on Xerxes' personal predicament, and that is intentional. God is deliberately narrowing our focus so that we are now staring directly into the heart of the empire, and He does so because He wants us to come to the understanding that this empire is rotten to its core. And we need to see that. 
We need to see that there is movement here. There's transition here as we turn from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Whereas in chapter 1, God exposes the limits of human power. He showed us the laughability and the limits of human power so that we as His people wouldn't live in fear. In chapter 1, He shows us the limits of human power, but now here in chapter 2, He exposes the true depth of its corruption. And this expose, it it serves two very important purposes. First, it reveals the truth that the kingdoms of men are focused on feeding the lusts of men. The kingdoms of men are focused on feeding the lusts of men. Think about what we learned from, or what we've learned this morning. Far from serving the common good, the massive edifice of this empire existed solely to satisfy the appetites of one single man. And there are no links that that this man won't go to to satisfy those needs. It's clear from what we've read this afternoon that not only does the common good mean nothing to Xerxes, neither do individual rights or freedoms. Ultimately, if saving his own bacon meant that hundreds of women would need to be ripped from their homes, used for his pleasure, and then consigned to a lifetime of isolation and imprisonment, well, as far as Xerxes was concerned, that was just the cost of doing business. Their lives, their happiness, their welfare meant nothing to him. But the truly staggering thing to realize, beloved, is that the entire system of Persian society supported Xerxes in the perpetration of these atrocities. And why is that? Because the people who inhabited Xerxes' empire were all desperately trying to become him. And so they're not just willing to to turn a blind eye to these abuses of power, they're willing to participate in them, all in the hopes that doing so would result in their own advancement and exaltation. Don't kid yourselves, brothers and sisters. You can be absolutely sure that the moment after Xerxes signed on to this plan, there would have been a mad scramble as the young men of the Persian court all raced home to try to figure out which one of their sisters, which one of their daughters was the prettiest. There were many, many young women who found themselves being offered up that night as their families sacrificed them on the altar of self-interest. And if we're honest, if we're honest, we'd have to assume that faced with the prospect of becoming the queen, at least some of these women must have concluded that their virtue would be a small price to pay for such an opportunity. And all of this, All of this drives home the point that the kingdoms of men are ultimately kingdoms of self. The kingdoms of men are ultimately kingdoms of self. Which means that the most shocking discovery we make as we study these verses is that the Persian Empire was nothing more than the sinful heart of man writ large. And what that means is that the window that God has opened in this chapter, 
the window that he's opened that allows us to look into the heart of this empire, it turns out to be a window that looks directly into my own heart. For the truth, the truth is that the same self-centered heart that, that beat within Xerxes, it beats within me as well. And the truth is that without the gracious intervention of God, I would pursue the lusts of the flesh exactly as he did. The truth, brothers and sisters, is that as we read these verses, God not only opens our eyes to the corrupt foundations of human power, he moves us to confess, there but for the grace of God go I. These opening verses, however, they also serve another purpose, because by means of these verses, the Lord is preparing us for another transition in this story. In chapter 1, he's given us a, a wide-angle view of the Persian Empire. In the opening verses of chapter 2, our focus is narrowed down to a, a consideration of its heart. But then in verse 5, God shifts our perspective again, and we're now shown what it was like to live as a citizen of that empire. More specifically, we're shown what it was like for God's children to live as citizens of that empire. To that end, there's a, a rather sudden transition that takes place at verse 5, and we're suddenly introduced to two Jews. We're introduced to Mordecai and to his orphaned cousin Esther. And Mordecai and Esther, we're told, were descendants of those who had been carried into exile by Nebuchadnezzar roughly a hundred years ago. And for us, this shift, this transition in focus, it it comes as a welcome change because to this point we've been dealing with powerful and perverted Persians and their behavior has provoked both our laughter and our disgust. But now, now we're introduced to a couple of hometown Hebrews and we get excited, we get excited to read about some of our own people. But brothers and sisters, we cannot lose sight of the fact that what God has told us in verses 1 through 4, it's intended to inform us. It's intended to prepare us to interpret the remainder of what comes in chapter 2. And I really want to emphasize that because as we make our way through this passage, it is possible that your enthusiasm to learn about the, about the exploits and about the behavior of Mordecai and Esther, it's possible that that excitement and enthusiasm will begin to wane. And I say that because our expectation is likely that amidst all of this immorality and amidst all of this corruption, our hometown Hebrews, that they're going to stand out, that they're going to stand out as shining beacons of purity and truth. But the trouble is that as we read through this chapter, things don't seem to work out that way. In fact, what we discover is that it actually proves rather difficult to distinguish between the citizens of God's kingdom and those of Xerxes' empire. We've been hoping to find heroes, and what we've discovered are, are folks who look more like conformists. Consider what we're told about Esther, for instance. Well, Esther is undoubtedly a victim here. She's undoubtedly powerless to resist being dragooned into participating in this travesty. Once she is within the harem, 
her behavior can leave us feeling a bit conflicted. Undoubtedly, for instance, the year-long process of beautification, it would have involved a diet that was regulated by her Persian masters. And that diet would surely have included foods which the Jews had been forbidden by God to eat. And yet there is no indication that, like Daniel, Esther tried to find some way, some means of avoiding becoming unclean. And while Esther certainly hadn't chosen this fate, our text makes it clear that she excels within the world of the harem, and it appears that she did so not by standing out, but by fitting in. Consider how she wins Haggai's favor precisely because she's not only willing to get with the program, she's prepared to follow it to the letter. And then, then there's the very uncomfortable fact that Esther ultimately wins this contest. And remember that the only way for her to win was for her to please the king, an unclean Gentile to whom she was not married. And not only did she have to please him, she had to please him better than any of the other women had done. And again, the the text makes no indication that like Joseph, who shook off his cloak and fled from Potiphar's wife, that Esther struggled to avoid this fate. In fact, the suggestion seems to be that when her time came, she went, and she went with the intention of winning. More troubling still is Mordecai's behavior. Now, we know from the text that Mordecai had become Esther's surrogate father, And so, understandably, he he cared for her very deeply. It's understandable that Mordecai would would want to protect this young girl that he'd come to view as his own daughter. But what are we to make of his insistence that she hide her Jewish identity? How could a faithful man of God ever tell his child to hide her light under a bushel basket? Given that God calls us to confess His name before all men in all circumstances, and regardless of the cost, how could Mordecai, how could he possibly tell Esther to conceal her heritage? Well, brothers and sisters, as we try to work our way through these feelings, it is very important for us to remember what our text does and does not tell us. First of all, in terms of information that our text does not provide, we are not given any sense of of what Mordecai and Esther were thinking or feeling as these events unfolded. We aren't told, for instance, what Esther's state of mind was as she was led to the king's bedchamber. Was she reluctant? Was she eager? Was she remorseful? Or was she determined? We're simply not told. And the same is true of Mordecai. We're not specifically told, for instance, whether or not Mordecai had hidden his own Jewish identity. And we're not told precisely what motivated him to command Esther to do the same. Was Mordecai a man of weak faith, or was he a man of sensible pragmatism? Again, the text, it just doesn't tell us. What's notable, however, is that there is something else that is missing from this text, and that is any form of praise or condemnation of their choices and actions. The narrator of this story, 
He makes no moral evaluation of their behavior anywhere in these verses. We aren't told why they did what they did. And we aren't told whether the way that they responded to their circumstances is something that we should find to be laudable or reprehensible. All we're told is how they acted within the circumstances that they found themselves. But while there is certainly information that we have not been given, it's also true that we have been provided with precisely what we need in order to be able to come to grips with this story and to be encouraged by it. And in that sense, brothers and sisters, I'd, I'd like to point out two critical pieces of information that we have been given in this chapter. There are two things that God tells us here that are tremendously important. First of all, we are told where Mordecai and Esther are. God locates them for us. He puts them in a very particular time and uh, place and in a very particular time, and He tells us precisely where they are. And secondly, we're told that where they are is not where they are going to stay. So, God tells us where they are, and He tells us that where they are is not where they're going to remain. First of all, then, our text, it tells us where they are. And where they are is in Susa, which was one of the two capital cities of the Persian Empire. More specifically, we're told that, that Mordecai lived and worked in the citadel. Now, the citadel was essentially a kind of segregated section of the city. You have the city of Susa proper, and then within that city, there's a, there's a walled section that is known as the citadel. This is where the palace was. This is where the king's officials were located. And this is where we're told that Mordecai, he lives and he works in the citadel. And as we're, we've been told, Esther, Esther is drawn out of the city and she is placed within the royal harem. And what we have to realize is that this location, where they are, it matters because in terms of the entire kingdom, think about that. We talked about the expanse of this kingdom. Stop and think about just how big this kingdom is, all the way from Africa to India. This is a not insignificant piece of real estate. But if you think about the totality of that kingdom, there was nowhere else where Xerxes' power could be more directly applied. And therefore, there was nowhere else that the, the force of Xerxes' power came down more fully on his subjects, which meant that the people who lived within the confines of the citadel, it meant on the one hand that they lived close to the wealth and the power and the splendor of this kingdom, but it also meant that they would be the first to suffer the exploitation and the corruption that flowed forth from its heart. And it is within this context that these two hometown Hebrews are trying to survive. It's here that they're, they're trying to live out the, the calling of all believers, and that is the calling to be in the world, but not of it. And let's be honest, beloved, that's surely one of the most difficult challenges we face as believers. And if we're honest, it's a challenge that we fail at, even despite the fact that we live here in a country like Canada. Ask yourselves this question, would our neighbors easily be able to distinguish between us and the folks who live around us? 
Do we stand out in our neighborhood as shining beacons of purity and truth? Or do we look pretty much like every other suburban Canadian family? And if we, if we so often fail to distinguish ourselves, despite the fact that we live in the midst of a free and a democratic society that possesses a, a developed sense of individual rights and freedoms, are we prepared to cast stones at Mordecai and Esther for the choices that they made as they lived literally in the shadow of Xerxes' throne? It's so easy, brothers and sisters, for us to imagine ourselves as heroes. It's easy to imagine how brave we would be if we were in Mordecai or Esther's position. We like to imagine that we would behave like Daniel, that we would be like Joseph, and that no matter what the cost, we would, we would let our light shine brightly for the Lord. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, and I'll admit to you that <clears throat> I'm quoting from a, a shockingly profane source, but the infamous boxer, Mike Tyson, he once observed, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And what he meant by that is that we all think we're champions until the blows start landing. And we've got to remember that those are precisely the circumstances that, that Esther and Mordecai are trying to survive in as they live out their lives as God's children. And Esther and Mordecai, they're not being punched by Mike Tyson. They are being punched by an empire. And being aware of where they were, it can help us come to grips with some of the choices that they make. Think, for instance, of Mordecai's command that, that Esther hide her Jewish identity. Mordecai made that decision as a man who lived in Xerxes' court. He made that decision as a man who, who knew what the consequences would be if Esther was not chosen as the queen. Understand that all of the women who did not win this contest would have been shut up for the remainder of their lives in that second harem that's mentioned in this text. And again, that has everything to do with Xerxes. Xerxes couldn't take the risk that any of the children that might be born as a result of the liaisons that he'd had with these women would rise to become a threat to him. In the ancient world, if you were a king, there was no one who was more dangerous to you than your brothers, and your sons. Xerxes couldn't take the chance that any of those children might rise to be competitors to him. Now, imagine for a moment. Imagine for a moment that you are forced into this contest when you are a young woman. Maybe you are 15, maybe you are 16 years of age, and, and you're dragged into this contest, and then you lose. Well, you don't get to go home. You're going to be cast aside, and you're going to be forced to live in complete neglect and isolation for the remainder of your days. And here's the thing we need to realize. It might not be the natural remainder of your days either, because in the ancient world, when new kings came to power, one of the first things that they would do would be to liquidate the harem of their predecessors. And those are the circumstances 
that Esther is caught up in. Which means, brothers and sisters, that as we read chapter 2 of this book, we need to stop thinking about this contest as being a beauty contest. This isn't a beauty pageant. It is a back-alley knife fight. And when you are fighting for your life, you can't afford to give your opponents the slightest advantage. And Mordecai knew. He knew that within the world of the harem, information was power. And he understood that Esther couldn't afford to give her enemies any leverage that could be used against her. And we need to remember that Mordecai would also have known what the young men at court knew, which was that the Persian kings, they had a long and they had an established and they had a historic practice of of choosing women with pure Persian bloodlines to be their queen. And so in that context, being identified as a Jewess, it could only have hurt Esther's chances. Now that might not justify Mordecai's decision, but it sure does help to explain it. And brothers and sisters, we see here the importance of the, of the shift in perspective that occurs between chapter 1 and chapter 2 because it is easy to laugh at the power of men when you are looking, things, looking at things from the vantage point of heaven, but it is harder to laugh when you're sitting amidst the mud and the mire of life in this broken world. And so this chapter, it reminds us that that living as God's children in this sinful, broken world, it's a hard and it's a messy business, and all too often we are not up to the task. We don't always make the right choices. We don't always respond to our circumstances the way that we should, and the reality is that, that all too often we prove to be pragmatists rather than heroes. All too often, we choose conformity rather than witness. And the reason that this is so has everything to do with the heart that beats within us. This heart is a sinful heart. It is a Xerxes heart. And that means that that sometimes when we are confronted by the, the hard decisions of this life, we don't know what to do. And sometimes, even when we do know what the right thing is, even in those times when the right choice is clear to us, we don't have the strength to follow that path. Should Mordecai have told Esther to stand out from the crowd by revealing her Jewish identity? Maybe. Perhaps she would have found favor in Haggai's sight in the same way that Daniel had found favor in the Babylonian court. Or she could have ended up discarded and dead. Who's to say? Certainly not us, that's for sure. But the wonderful comfort of this chapter is that whatever the rightness or the wrongness of their their motives and decisions, Mordecai and Esther, they've not been left alone to fend for themselves in this world. And what this chapter reveals to us is the incredible truth that where they are is not where they are going to remain. And that's because the sovereign God of history, that God whom we talked about this morning, who is watching over His people, He is aware of their struggles. He is aware of their strife. And He is working to ensure that they will triumph over their circumstances even if they don't know it themselves. And that's made clear to us by the way that this chapter comes to a conclusion, 
we're told that Mordecai, who was in that citadel and who was in the palace gates, that Mordecai just happened to hear of a plot against Xerxes' life. And as those who read these words with the eyes of faith, we realize that there is nothing coincidental about what happens here. For we know that even if God is not specifically mentioned, even if He isn't specifically identified or or spoken about in these verses, we know that it is the Lord Himself who has engineered these circumstances. It's the Lord who's caused these words to come to Mordecai's ears. And as a master storyteller, God lets us see something here. He lets us see something of His work in Mordecai's life as a kind, of, a kind of clue, if you will, or a kind of preview of coming attractions. As we come to the end of chapter 2, God is saying to us, get ready, keep watching, because here you can be sure that I am working to the good of my people even in the midst of their sinful circumstances. But he's not just signaling to us that that he is active here in what's happening. He's also providing us with an incredible message of comfort because by ending the chapter the way that he does, God teaches us that his power and his greatness, they are greater than the consequences of our sinful choices. God is saying to us here, my grace, my power, my love, my strength are so much greater than even the the wrong and the sinful choices that you have made. It's true, he says. It's true that so often the ways that you have chosen to, to navigate through life have been sinful and disastrous. And I know all too well what the dire consequences of your choices have been. But watch as I now show you my power and how my power is so much greater than your sin. Watch as I overcome and undo the sinful consequences of the choices that you have made. Brothers and sisters, Mordecai and Esther, they were exiles. They were exiles who'd been consigned to live in a hostile foreign land by the sinful disobedience of their forefathers. And they were sinners. They were sinners who often had to bear the consequences of their own flawed and of their own short-sighted decisions. But they were also God's children. And so they would never be lost to the sin in which they had been born, and they would never be lost to the sin into which they had cast themselves, which means that where they were wasn't where they would remain because God would lead them. He would lead them from where they were to where they needed to be. And what he does for Mordecai and Esther, he will do for all of his children. That's why we took a moment to read from the Gospel of Luke this afternoon and to hear again the words of the thief who who hung beside Jesus on the cross. Have you ever stopped to think about that man? Have you ever stopped to think about the trajectory of that man's life? Every decision that that thief had been made was wrong. Every choice that that guy had made had clearly been disastrous. He was a rebel. He was a thief. He was a murderer. And now as a consequence of those choices, he had been nailed to a cross. There was a lifetime of sin. 
There was a lifetime of of disobedience and rebellious choices that lay behind him. And yet in the final moments of his life, he acknowledged the truth of his circumstances. He turns to the other thief, and what does he say to that other thief? He says, you shut up. You be quiet. The reality, he says to that other thief, is that we are right where we deserve to be. Being nailed to a cross is a result of the the choices that we have made. But then he turns to Jesus. He turns to Jesus, and there he sees the one whom he knew would not leave him where he was. He turns to the one who could help him triumph over all the sin and the suffering that he had caused and endured. And he appeals to Jesus. And what does he ask Jesus to do? He says to Jesus, take me from where I am and lead me to where I need to be. That's why he asked Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? And how does Jesus respond? How does he respond to the the request of this murderer, this thief, this rebel, this person with nothing but, but tragedy and heartbreak in their past? Well, he responds with mercy and with the steadfast promise that his mercy was greater than this man's sin. That's why Jesus responds by telling the man that today, that's so important, he says to the man, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus says to him, because you have believed on me, you may be certain that I will not leave you to suffer the consequences of your own sinful choices. Instead, Jesus says, I will take you from where you are, and I will bring you to be with me. Just like Mordecai and Esther's story, that man's story was recorded so that we might have hope. Hope that if we acknowledge our sin and our shortcoming, hope that if we turn to the Lord, He will not let us be lost to the consequences of our own sinful choices and decisions. Hope that He will take each and every one of us from where we are and that He will lead us to where we need to be. Amen.